Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. For you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us in God. We have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Uh, uh, Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us. For the sake of your steadfast love. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. Well, this is a a poem in which the poet makes an airtight rational argument of sorts, but it's an airtight rational argument against God. All of the commands, by the way, of this poem. They're actually words directed to God himself. Look at verse 4. Ordain salvation for Jacob. God commands salvation to happen. Look at verse 23. Awake. Rouse yourself. 26. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us. Well, these are commands. And they're commands that are directed to God. And we also know that uh, the poet has put this poem together with great deliberateness. 
It's called at the very beginning a maskal, and uh, uh, for some scholars, they think that the word maskal refers to skillfulness of composition. And so it's deliberately composed. And not only uh, this, uh, the poet making commands to God, deliberately composing this poem, uh, but this poem also was meant for corporate worship. It's addressed to a choir master, a musical leader. And did you notice in verse 8 the word selah? I'm going to refer to that again, but it's a musical notation. And and we're told uh, by the poet that it's related to the sons of Korah, uh, a clan of the Levites who rebelled against Moses and Aaron in number 16, to be sure. But uh, this uh, family was especially known because they carried tabernacle items during the wilderness. And then they were responsible for uh, serving at the gate of the temple. And they are known even as singers. So it's a poem For worship purposes, which means that it's a poem meant not just for the original audience of Psalm 44, it's a poem meant for us, followers of Jesus who gather together to worship him. And there's also reason to suggest that the poem, uh, uh, poem's author is uh, actually uh, himself a king. Uh, There's a, a personal touch to this poem that smells of royalty. Look at verse 4. You are my king, O God. It's personal. In verse 6, not in my bow do I trust. In 15, all day long my disgrace is before me. And so it's a poem that's personal and probably written by someone who is actually a king. Now, Why do you suppose it is that the king would give his people permission, not merely endorsement, but permission to complain to God and to do it very, very well and with music? Why do you think the king would do that? It may be, and I've heard this, it may be uh, because the king uh, wants the people to uh, not merely understand but actually feel and trust that God is not fragile, that he's actually big enough to endure our complaints and so we can complain to him uh, without uh, molding him or uh, uh, bending him. And it could be that uh, the king wants his people to know that God is not fragile, he's secure. What Psalm 44 is doing for us is uh, it's teaching us to sit before this king, the poet, the king who wants us to know that Christians have a relationship of trust with God, not because of how they assess him. Christians have a relationship of trust with God, not because of how they assess him, but because of who he is apart from them as their one true redeemer. The relationship, Christian, that we have with God is a relationship that we have not because we esteem God or we assess him properly. We have that relationship because of who he is apart from us, the one true redeemer. That is what the king wants his people to sing. 
Now, it's very clear as you look at the beginning of this psalm that, uh, that there is a, a kind of relationship that we have with God that's a relationship based upon uh, the greatness of God. Uh, verses uh, 1 through 8 uh, tell us this. Uh, look at the first three verses. In these verses, uh, we uh, learn about people whom we've never met and events that we've never seen. This is from a bygone error. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their day, but the deeds themselves aren't specifically listed by the poet. He says in verse 2, you drove out the nations, but you planted our people. You afflicted those people, but our people you set free. Uh, You didn't need uh, your people's sword. You didn't need your people's arm to do this. You did this in verse 3, by the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Now, this is a a beautiful expression. In fact, it even sounds as though uh, it's uh, like a a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. God did all of these things uh, we have heard from our fathers uh, because the light of your face was delighted in them. But I, I want us all to notice that in those first three verses, there's reference to generic greatness. We're not given any details. And so as we'll see, the poem is a, is a lament, but it actually begins uh, uh, very, very chipper. It begins like a ballad, like a song of victory. The poet's not lying. God, he is great. But the poet actually gives us no specifics in verses 1 through 3 of his greatness. No uh, names, uh, no places. Uh, This uh, comes across as a generic sentiment of God's greatness and favor in terms of national victory. Now, that's not inappropriate, but I want us to pay attention to the fact that it's rather distant and generic. And then in verses 4 through 8, the poet uh, becomes a bit more uh, specific, and he, he presents the specific greatness of God, not merely the generic greatness. And this is a greatness that the poet himself seems to know a bit more about. Here in verse 4, it's the very first command that he gives to God, and it's very personal and very direct. O oh, my king, O oh God, ordain salvation for Jacob. I wonder why the ESV uses such a holy-sounding word like ordain. You know, the word in the Hebrew, he says, uh, he says ordain salvation for Jacob. The word in the Hebrew, it literally means uh, to command, uh, to uh, give an order. And so I think the, the King James Version actually says it better. Thou art my king, O God, command deliverances for Jacob. The poet's being assertive. But I don't think he's being hostile towards God. He's making a command to God regarding something God has actually uh, already done. You, you see that uh, this uh, poet knows uh, who God is. And as he says, uh, command uh, salvation for Jacob, he knows that God has actually already, he's already done that. It's very easy for us to find uh, God to be faithful and loving immediately after something good has happened. That's true for me. Is it true for you? You When we get a a job or a promotion, uh, finish school or some some big life stage, we uh, reflect upon something good that has happened, uh, then uh, we know for sure that God is a good God. And we know that we have victory because of God. 
And just like the unnamed people from the past, the poet now, he talks about God's greatness in the present. Now look what he says in verse 5. Through you we push down our foes. Through you we push down our foes. And we tread down those who rise up against us. What great assertiveness and confidence. He knows that God is the God of salvation. And just like in the past, the poet knows personally that God has done this. He says in verse 6, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. Just like those stories that he heard in the past in verses 1 through 3. The poet himself has actually experienced these things. The the present sentiment, we think, is uh, summarized in verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. How great and glorious is this? God is great generically, but God is also great specifically. In my life, I've seen it. I've experienced it. He did great things in the past, and those people knew it, and they thanked him. And all of us can attest to the greatness of God because we have personally experienced him doing great things in the present or in the near present. And we also, as a church body, can attest to the greatness of God. They thanked God in the past, and we thank him not only in the present, but in verse 8, we thank him continually and will give thanks to him forever. And then you see that notation in verse 8, Selah, which I didn't read when I read Psalm 44. Which probably here in verse 8 indicates a long pause. What a great place for a pause. Imagine if the psalm just ended at verse 8. How complete it would be. And how cheery it would be. How encouraged we all would be. Uh, God, he's just so great. And despite our weaknesses, he does great things. And and really, uh, all we can do is sit back and praise his name for all of the great things that he has done and is doing now. This makes perfect sense. But it isn't actually real life, is it? I mean, life isn't as cut and dry is this, that we, uh, we uh, pray to God and God answers our prayers, that God always defeats our enemies, that, that everything uh, unfolds uh, swimmingly well, and then we just praise God and, and we are ebullient in our praise and we say things like, I'll praise you forever and continually. Well, life isn't always like that. And what the, what the poet is doing is he's preparing us. There's something more that comes after the Selah at the end of verse 8. Because Christians have a relationship of trust with God, but not because of how they assess God or how they experience God, but because of who he is apart from them and even apart from their experiences. Sometimes in life, God's greatness seems interrupted. And that's where the poet takes us in verses 9 through 16. God's greatness may seem interrupted. And he's going to say to us two things about the interruption or the apparent interruption of God's greatness. Things don't always uh, happen according to our plans. They don't always happen well. And the poet is going to tell us two things about God. He is saying that God's greatness may seem interrupted, but he will not be controlled by your wishes. He will not be controlled by your wishes. And the poet is going to say something else as well. That God's greatness may seem interrupted. But your faith will not motivate him to change. 
Those are the two things in verses 9 through 16 that the poet wants us to realize about things that we know all too well that greatness doesn't always unfold before us, that sometimes difficulties and trials unfold before us. And that while uh, the poet is saying that while these seem like interruptions, God is not going to be controlled by your wishes, nor will he be controlled by your faith, that your faith might motivate him. And let's just take these uh, one at a time, shall we? Verse 9 says, But you have rejected and disgraced us and have not uh, gone out with our armies. You see, in verse 9, things actually become very specific, don't they? It's not generic success. It's personal rejection, personal disgrace. Things are so specific. The absence of details in the victory of verses 1 through 3 is replaced by the specifics of defeat in 9 through 16. Verse 10, they have had to retreat from the enemy and actually leave precious spoil. That's what the poet says in verse 10. Now, the precious spoil, this may be uh, equipment for war, uh, it may be money, it may be food, but it might also be people. Let's take the poet seriously. He says in verse 11 that the defeat was a thorough defeat like sheep for slaughter. He says in verse 12 that, uh, that his uh, soldiers, that his people had been sold for a trifle. How easy it was for the enemy to defeat them. Our enemy didn't even have to work at it. He also says in verse 11 uh, that they have been scattered among the nations. And this probably refers to uh, being so desperate that they've broken ranks and that they've uh, scattered uh, to their neighbors and to uh, villages around looking for any uh, house in which to hide. Which is, may, which is why he may also say in verse 14 that they've become a laughing stock among their neighbors. Gone to hide among their neighbors' homes and having become laughing stocks there. Now, what we want to do here is we want to emphasize what the poet emphasizes. That's just good study of God's Word. We want to believe that the poet means what he's saying. And when the poet is describing these misfortunes, he is not merely describing misfortunes. He's doing it with specific detail, but he's emphasizing something in particular. That God, he's not been great in the same way that he was in verses 1 through 3. He's not been great in the same way. And he's not been great, uh, uh, as great in the, in the same way as he was even in their own lives in verses 4 through 8. The things that they've actually experienced, plans coming together, this is different. But notice what he says. He says that this badness, things happening that are not like the things that happened in the days of yore, that have not happened according to the, to the things that we've experienced in the, in the very near past, These things are bad, and God did it. These things are bad, and God did it. I'm not making this up. And we must notice it if we're going to be faithful students of the Holy Spirit's work in Holy Scripture. In verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 13, in verse 14, God is to blame. You have done this, says the poet. You have done this. Now, we can, if we like, charge the poet for being simply ungrateful. 
But I want to ask why you might do that. Why do you immediately think the poet is ungrateful? Has he not already said in verse 8 that he will give thanks to God forever? I think instead what the poet is really doing is he's simply calling it like he sees it. And I believe he sees it rightly. And in your heart of hearts, you believe he sees it rightly as well. Now, of course, in times of victory, the poet believes that God, he's in control, uh, not uh, his own army, not his own strength, not his own valor, not his own planning. He really does believe that God is in control, and God is the one who gives him victory. And the poet knows that for this particular battle, that there actually uh, was no victory. When there was victory, the poet knows, I didn't deserve that victory. But this is a situation in which there is no victory, and he knows it. Today, there's been a resounding defeat. But what really has changed for the poet? Today, there's been a resounding defeat, but really, has cha- what has changed? Is God, is he no longer in control because of this resounding defeat? Has God somehow been caught unawares or unprepared? Well, not to the poet. And again, in verses 10 and 11, and 12, and 13, and 14. Do you remember how harsh and negative that sounded not a minute and a half ago? What the poet believes in those verses when he says that, God, you have done this, you are to blame, is he believes that, God, he's in control. He really believes that. Now, this is a tremendously awkward reality For someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. For someone who has lived as a follower of Jesus, this uh, certainly becomes a very awkward reality. But this is a necessary awkward reality. Because sometimes it really does feel as though God's greatness has been interrupted. We know that feeling as Christians. But the poet is telling us that God, he's in control even when the outcomes are not to your liking. Indeed, the outcomes are not to your liking. Indeed, the outcomes are to no one's liking that you know. But God, he's in control. You might quibble with the poet in terms of his terminology. Uh, You might uh, suddenly put on a more theological lens or aspect with regards to Scripture. And you might say, well, yes, God allows things to happen, but he doesn't make them happen. Don't even bother with that distinction. What a waste of time. The poet doesn't speak that way. And you don't have to speak that way. Let's be sure of this. The poet is in control. You may not like it, and his actions may not fit your definition of good nor my definition of good, but he's in control fully and completely. And so, you see, this is what the poet wants us to understand, is that Christians have a relationship of trust with God, not because of how they assess God's work in their lives, but because he is who he is, and he's completely in control. And so while verses 9 through 16 uh, tell us that God's greatness may seem interrupted, uh, however, he's not going to be controlled by our wishes, look what happens in verses 17 through 22. The poet tells us that while God's greatness may seem interrupted, he will not be controlled even by our faithfulness. 
Think about that. He's not going to be controlled by our wishes, our desires for how things should unfold. He's not going to be controlled by our faithfulness. (laughs) That's a hard thing to hear, is it not? That your faith will not motivate God to change. The poet says in verse 17, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. And just as you hear that, And I know this because the same happens when I hear it. As we hear that, it is so tempting for us to assume that the poet is being merely arrogant. Hyperbolic in his speech, he's unnecessarily uh, exaggerating the truth. All this has come upon us, though we've not forgotten you and have not been false to your covenant. It's so tempting for us to assume that he's being arrogant. He says in verse 18, Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Really? (laughs) All of you? Really, Mr. Poet? Verse 21, or 20 through 21, If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? After all, he knows the the secrets of the heart. (laughs) You know that phrase in verse 20, Forgotten the name of God? This is what it usually uh, refers to in, in, uh, uh, in, in, as a Hebrew expression. It refers to, uh, forgotten the name of our God in verse 20, it refers to an unfaithfulness of turning away from God. And I would encourage you not to be quick to assume that the poet is exaggerating or being arrogant. The poet has not steered us wrong yet. He's actually been brutally honest. And I think he's being brutally honest here as well. The poet is saying that neither he nor his people have actually turned from God. They believe in him. They should believe in him. They've searched their hearts individually, and it would seem they've searched their hearts corporately as well. There's no uh, flagrant sin in the camp, as it were. They're faithful. They're true to God. They love him. So, (laughs) now what? Well, this is what what a lament does. A lament uh, flips that light switch that says um, good things must happen. And the poet turns that light switch out. And he's beginning to turn another light switch out. Even in their faithfulness, God has seen fit to defeat them. This is so clear in verse 22. Yet for your sake, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We're faithful, God. But you're doing what you do. You are not concerned by my desire and my hope for victory in battle, nor are you swayed by my faithfulness from your ordained, right, good, holy, powerful plan. Do you doubt that this is the way we should read Psalm 44, that the poet is in earnest in his faith? But I would challenge you that Paul reads verse 22 in exactly the same way. In Romans 8, he he quotes uh, Psalm 22, and uh, Danny read it for us earlier in the service. In Romans 8, he is addressing justified Christians, Paul is, heirs with Christ, those who have been uh, set free by the spirit of life. 
Paul describes people who have benefited from the work of God, who has sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in that Christian whom Paul is addressing, who walks not according to flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul, he's addressing faithful Christians in Romans 8. But those faithful Christians sometimes... Sometimes they're killed all the day long and they're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what Paul quotes from Psalm 44. This is a tragic reality. God's control never falters. He will stop at nothing to effect his plan. And your wishes for earthly success will not control him. And your faith will never control his plan. He is entirely, completely independent from you and your wishes. The poet does not say that God does not care. But he does say that God is himself independent. Now, notice what the poet has done. He's turned off the lights of earthly success. And he's turned off the lights of personal faithfulness. What do I have? What's left? I have nothing now. But a Christian has a relationship of trust with God, not because of how they assess God, but because of who he is apart from them as the one true redeemer. Return to the fact that this poem is written by a faithful follower of God and he has written thoughtfully and he has written for corporate prayer and for corporate worship and he has written with the work of the Holy Spirit and so what he has written is authoritative. He's not perfect, but he's an awful lot like the devoted followers of Jesus here in this room. He is a Christian who is trying to come to terms with the hurt that he experiences in this present age. And so he's called out, hasn't he, some hard truths that there is sometimes horrible defeat in the Christian life. But when this happens, God's control is not thwarted. Not by the enemies, but also not by my own faith and by my own intentions. It is his control. And he functions independently, even though sometimes I am hurt. And yet Jesus in Luke 6 seems to promise this very thing, does he not? That there will be hurt and pain in this life. But then he says in John 17 that God the Father will be with us and that God the Spirit will be with us, even in those hurts. What are we to do when these hurts come upon us? The poet, he tells us what to do. Remember I said that there are command words in this poem, but the command words at the end of the poem suddenly become music to your ears and music to my own ears. What does the poet do in situations like this? Uh, The hurt is before him. The hurt he feels. The hurt doesn't seem to, to go away. And his best wishes have not come to fruition. And his faithfulness seems to make a very little difference. The hurt is the hurt. And in verse 23, he says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. In verse 26, rise up, come to our help. My brothers and my sisters, 
Do you know that this is what faithfulness looks like and sounds like? Do you know that this is what trust looks like and sounds like? Do you know that this is what the Christian walk looks like and sounds like? It's crying out to God. He's capitalizing upon a personal relationship that he has with God. He counts on his reconciliation with God. He does not stew in anger. Uh, He does not turn God into something other than who he says he is. And he doesn't act like God doesn't listen. Do you know what this feels like? I pray that you do. That you and I would cry out to him. If God is in control, even when outcomes are not to our liking, and if our faithfulness is not a controlling influence on on God, then we truly are, aren't we, helpless and needy. And that's the way God likes us. Helpless and needy. Because he is in control. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look what the poet leaves us with. A beautiful address that's spoken directly to God on behalf of himself and and others, claiming nothing about himself, claiming nothing about his circumstances, nothing about what God has done in the past. He puts everything in God's hands. Read it. It's in verse 26. Redeem us. For the sake of your steadfast love. Not for my wishes the way things would unfloral before me. Not for my great faithfulness. But for the sake of your steadfast love. And that love has been shown to us in Christ Jesus who is our Savior. And now all of the lights have gone out. And there is the brightness of the cross of Jesus Christ. He saves us not for our sake, but for his own name's sake. That's redemption. And Christians have a relationship with trust with God, not because of how we assess God, but because of who he is apart from us as the uh, so, so solitary, one true redeemer. There's three quick applications, and I want to pray. The first is this. Would you please not lose faith because of personal hardship or because of apparent lack of justice on God's part? It's hard to make sense of our hardships, to be sure. But it is tragic to alter God to fit your arrogance. We have a relationship of trust with him, not because we understand him and not because we understand why he's doing what he's doing. We have a relationship of trust with him because of who he is, apart from our wishes about how things unfold. Please do not lose faith in personal hardship. But the second application is similar to it. Please do not boast when you seem to see things with a lot of clarity. Life is going well, therefore God is good. That's true. But he's good when things are not going well also. 
Be careful not to have the kind of faith that is only present when things are going well. We have a relationship of trust with him, not because of how we uh, understand his work in our lives and in our circumstances, but because of who he is apart from even the good things in life. And then the last application is very short. With this in mind, would you please be patient with one another in the hardships that they are enduring? Would you be slow to speak? And would you be quick to love? Let's be patient with one another as we in this present age endure hardships because we know he's still in control. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you are with us when things are going well, when things are going poorly. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you don't look for us to learn how to behave or to, or to act. You look to your own internal counsel, a counsel within the Trinity, And so we thank you, Father, for being independent of us. But we thank you most of all that in your wisdom and in your plan, you would see fit to save us in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for saving us for your namesake, motivated only by your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.